You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Resimsinski and I, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, this podcast series is all about voicing our differences on the one topic that brings us together, namely systematic investing using the often overlooked but very robust strategy of trend following. We hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to learn more by diving into the back catalogue and listen to all of the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Rob, where we spend quite a bit of time discussing a recent research paper from AHL on some very important trend-following topics. And since Rob used to work at AHL, this was a really exciting look-behind-the-curtain conversation you don't want to miss. But also... I would like to highlight our Wednesday episode with Peter Atwater, where we discuss the importance of confidence and socionomics when it comes to mapping up the future of financial market moves. This was a really eye-opening conversation. So if you missed any of those, I really would encourage you to go back and listen to these episodes. Now, Mark, it's always exciting to be back with you. How are things? Uh, it's another eventful week, I should say, another eventful uh, part of a, a a year that just seems to go from worse to worse for traditional investments. So how are you doing? How are things where you are? Good. Uh, I, I will sort of say that uh, after this week, uh, I will sort of say I wish I had even more exposure to my, tr- uh, you know, to trend following than I had in the past. So like a lot of investments, you'd say, uh, ex post, you'll often sort of say, gee, I wish I had more of that. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of investors are saying that right now. But, you know, it's never too late. And hopefully uh, some of the things we're going to discuss today will help those who are still on the sideline to uh, make a commitment to uh, get involved with this uh, strategy as a complement to what they're doing already now. Now, let's look at what's been going on in this uh a very eventful week, really. And um, I'm sure at least that you, Mark, you will remember. Um, but back in 1987, Bud Fox in the movie Wall Street received inside information whenever he heard the words, Blue Horseshoe Loves. And I wonder if uh, they used the same words when clearly someone at the Fed leaked their intentions to raise by the biggest amount in decades to the World, World Wall Street Journal at the beginning of this week, ahead of the actual announcement. Chairman Powell pretty much admitted as much at the post-FOMC press conference, but it really doesn't matter because we all know that rates are going higher, and this week we got a little bit of a sense of how high they're going to go. In addition to that hawkish turn, the committee further communicated that they expect the overnight rate to end 2022 at 3.4%, and end 2023 at 3.8%. Moreover, to drive home this transformation from Trump lapdog to Volcker incarnate, he later said that his commitment to reigning in inflation was unconditional. Presumably, uh, that means that he doesn't care about what happens to equity markets and how they react. But perhaps it's a bit too early to get carried away by that verbal commitment. Only time will tell. 
Likely to complicate that pledge is signs of a slowdown in the U.S. economy because on Wednesday, while all eyes were on the Fed and uh, then the BLS came out reporting that housing starts plunged 14.4% in May from a month prior. Sure, there's probably some weather-related noise and there may be some scope for revision, but the underlying factor is that mortgage rates are about double where they were at the end of last year. Investors are weighing both the hawkish fit and the apparent slowdown and seem to have decided that they don't like either. The two-year note traded wildly for the week in a trading range of 3.09% all the way up to 3.43% on the yield before finally settling Friday near the weekly low. But to put that in perspective, it closed out May at 2.55%, so still a lot higher than only a few weeks ago. U.S. stocks didn't fare any better, with the S&P 500 continuing last week's swan dive, bringing the year-to-date performance to about minus 22%. And for the MSCI World Equity Index, that's now down 11% so far in June, and it's down more than 23% year-to-date. Let me bring you in here, Mark, just to touch on some of the things that has caught your attention since we last spoke. What have you been um, mostly focusing on? Well, it, what you see that a lot of the long-term trends have been in place for a very long time. And so surprisingly is this is, is that you you look for new information, you digest it, and you say, has my basic thesis for what's going on in the economy changed? And it really hasn't. And so that's because the thesis has stayed the same. We see that, may, that some of the major long-term trends are in place. So I went back and sort of looked at for example, even sort of more, you know, not, I don't want to say obscure, but there have been uh, trends, for example, uh, in, in coffee that have lasted for like nine months. You look at the bond uh, you know, trend, you know, down. It's been lasting for, you know, plus six months. Shorter term trends, you, know, uh, you could sort of see that, you know, may have been in and out a little bit on a more sh- shorter term basis. But if you look at more than 80 days, uh, sort of say, uh, so you're looking three months plus on a, on a trend-following basis, is that there have been trends that have been going on for a very long time. And this which makes this a very unique situation than the, you know, sort of pandemic result. And even when, and on a relative basis is that we had a tremendous, you know, move on the great financial crisis. But even then, is, is that you look at the length of the trend hadn't been uh, very long. So so the, the bottom of the stock market was reached in uh, March of 2009, and then we started to move back up. So, so this is a, sort of a very different type of environment than what we've seen in the great financial crisis and what we've seen in so, uh, some other periods like the pandemic in the last 10 years. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I mean, more and more people, I know we've been talking about this for a while on the podcast, I've certainly had the sense for quite some time that things were about to change massively, and it really was a regime change uh, ever since we saw the low rates on bonds and just, you know, inflation staying stable at near zero um, in in parts. I mean, it just felt like this couldn't go on forever, and I kind of... I am a bit disappointed that it's been such a surprise to policymakers that this is happening because it's been voiced by a number of people, not just here on this podcast for sure. Um, But in any event, I do think it's a big regime change. And actually for me, what all clicked was when I started 
kind of putting together what uh, one of our guests, uh, Peter Zion, on the Global Macro Series, we're talking about, and as well, actually, another guest, Kevin Coldine, in terms of the rise of Kerry and that regime that lasted for about 20 years. I think both of these you know, regimes, globalization and, and, and the rise of Kerry, I think now it's pretty clear that they are, they are over. And I actually heard the former Swiss National Bank uh, governor, Hildebrand, who's now co-vice uh, vice chairman at, at BlackRock, talk on Bloomberg this week. And, um, and he also used the words that this is completely different. It's a different regime. And um, that actually he used the words, I think he said that it is unlikely the highly unlikely, I think he even said, that central banks are going to engineer a soft landing. It's just impossible um, because this is not just about demand. It's very much about supply and and they can't, they don't control that just to, to any degree really. So we're in, we're in interesting times. And as you started out by saying, you wish you had more trend following in your portfolio and um <laughs> But but joking aside, and we're going to talk about that today, of course, quite a lot, uh, why that may be a very, very important part or why it should be an important part of the, the, the portfolio. But I think it's it's just interesting to see how the conversation, how the uh, the research papers coming out right now is slowly changing the, the narrative. The narrative is slowly changing. We've been talking about that also for quite a while, that we wish the narrative would change. I sense it starting to change and people are starting to appreciate that in a uncertain, unstable environment where maybe central banks actually are losing control uh, to some degree, um, you need to find other um, investment opportunities than those that have worked for the last 30 or odd years. Um, so we'll see. We'll dive into that. In terms of just a quick update before we do so um, from the trend-following world, um, I do think this week was kind of a coin toss, whether you made a little bit of money or you lost a little bit of money, it kind of depends on where you were in some of the uh, sectors in terms of exposure that had big moves, um, because there were quite a lot of big moves this week. Uh, Non-US fixed income markets, for example, probably was a big winner for most people because yields really did continue to go up uh, this week. And even leading to the European Central Bank having to sit for an emergency meeting to discuss what tools to use to avert the debt crisis 2.0. So uh, this is pretty dramatic over here in Switzerland. And also, of course, uh, sorry, I not, didn't mean Switzerland, I meant Europe, but I was about to say that in Switzerland, we also saw a surprise rate hike by the Swiss National Bank. And that led to quite a sharp reversal in the Swiss franc against the dollar, but also a sharp reversal against trend follower short positioning for sure. Um, so that was a bit of a, a, a loss for the week, although I do think currencies overall probably was pretty flat uh, for, for trend followers. I think where the biggest pain were felt this week really came from the energy sector, um, which has been such a great uh, sector for trend followers this year. But there was a huge sell-off uh, on Friday. Not sure what happened, um, but it took NatGat prices down about 20% for the week and crude oil prices down about 10% for the week. So quite a big reversal. But elsewhere, I think actually things were pretty quiet, uh, including equities. I don't think trend followers per se have a, a lot of exposure uh, to equities. Uh, so I don't think that's where our returns are, are coming from uh, either way. In terms of my own trend barometer, it closed the week at 57. So that's a strong level, not extremely strong, but pretty healthy. Um, and I think that just confirms that 
uh, June so far uh, looks pretty uh, healthy for trend followers yet again. Uh, in terms of volatility, I don't really have much to say about that, but the week saw the S&P 500 heading for its worst week since March 2020. Uh, and that obviously was in the in the wake of central banks around the world hiking interest rates um, and the Fed hiking by the most since 1994. And uh, we also had uh, a number of economic data that came short of expectations. Um, so you kind of get the feel that there could be a recession uh, at some point uh, later this year starting if, if it hasn't already started. But for the VIX, the index, it started out with its second biggest spike, actually, of this year, uh, up 6.3 points. And then we just saw, um, you know, a a little bit of more uncertainty in terms of fixed strike volatility. But it was, again, pretty modest. I mean, if you think back, and I'm no volatility expert, as people will know, but if you just think back about where the VIX is today, you know, around the 30 level, and what and and where it was during COVID, where it was like hitting eighty, I think at some point, you see that the reaction pattern, the the level of uncertainty, is just very different uh, this time around. So even though we are in a bear market, no doubt about that, it feels different from the bear market we were in in March of twenty twenty, um, for sure. Anyways, should we dive into the first question, Mark? Sure. Sounds good. It's actually also the only question. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And then we're going to go into the... uh, We're actually going to debate another research paper this week. We're going to debate one from another great firm, Aspect Capital. They published one. So we're going to dive into that one. But before we get there, uh, I have a question here from Kyle. Hi, Nils. I have a question about position sizing, specifically when there are regular contributions to the account. I have... Two, long-only equity portfolios. One is a traditional trend-following breakout strategy, and the other is a time-series momentum strategy. Both use an index filter to protect the downside. My struggle is with the position sizing when new capital is added to the account and the strategies are invested. For example, the trend-following strategy holds a maximum of 20 positions, each being an equal 5% of the portfolio which the strategy is 50% invested when the new capital is added, how would you adjust your position size? I can see four possibilities and would love your opinion on them. Possibility number one, and funnily enough, I only see three, but let's uh, see what, what it says. Possibility number one, increase position size on new and existing positions. And then also, maybe this is the, the he writes in brackets, on new breakout signals for existing positions. Okay, that could be number two. Increased position size for all new positions, but this will lead to existing positions being underweighted. Keep extra cash on hand until the portfolio reverts to cash, but this will have an opportunity cost. I hope that my question is worded in a way that is comprehensible, and thank you for your insights that you can give. All right, thanks, Kyle. Um, Mark, how, how should one handle sort of, because actually this is relevant for not just your private portfolio, it's also relevant for, of course, a lot of people who who run trend-following tra- strategies as their uh, profession. Um, and there are different ways people do this. So in your view, what what's a good way to uh, add capital and adjust positions accordingly? Right. Well, I'm going to start with a little bit of a history. So if you go back to the 1980s, a lot of times when you people had uh, when managers were opening uh, or managing accounts for uh, clients, they would have separate accounts. 
and separate accounts would start at, diff uh, at different times. And the question always came in is, is, is that, well, if I start out a new account, should I put on all of the positions on as the same as the last account? And sometimes people would sort of say like, well, I'll wait until new signals come. And so what happens is, is that if you had a dozen accounts, you could actually have a 12 different performance records. And then what you, the CFTC would ask for is, is they'd say, well, we need to have a pro forma or we need to have a representative account of what your performance would be because you might have one account that's doing very well and one that's doing very poorly. And so in some sense is that if you sort of said, I manage all the accounts the same and they have the same positions on when new money comes in, you eliminate that, uh, we'll call it the dispersion in account behavior. So consequently, you usually say, if you get new money in, you say, whatever the uh, positions that you hold at the time that you have the money coming in is what you should put on for the new, uh, for the new money. So otherwise, you have uh, strange situations. So let's take, for example, energy. And you say like, well, I have a position on, I put on my energy position. It may have been you know, at the end of last year. And you say, I'm only going to put a, a new position on for new money when I reverse that position. So you could have potentially been out of the market for many of the best trends in the last six months over the last 20 years. Because you'd sort of say, I'm going to wait until I get my new signal. So you don't, and as a trend follower, you don't really sort of say, I have a prediction of what will happen in the future. All you say is, is that I'm in, uh, I hold a position now, given the fact that, you know, the price, uh, price action suggests that I'm in a trend that's either up or down. So consequently, you should sort of say, whatever the positions that you have in your existing portfolio, if new money comes in or, new, or a new client comes in, it should be inv invested in the existing portfolio. And, and, and because they, I think the biggest risk will always come in is this, is that if you have to wait, you're not putting that money to use. And how long do you think a trend is going to last? So let's say you've been in a trend for two months, for example. Well, as we talked about at the beginning of the call, there have been some longer-term trends that have been lasting for six to nine months. So you would basically miss all of those if you made the assumption that, well, I'm not going to put that money to use because I think that the trend is going to reverse. And if you truly believe that the trend is going to reverse or that, that it's not going to continue, then you probably should be out of that position to begin with. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there are two things here. First of all, I completely agree um, that you should just put the money to work straight away. Meaning, uh, if you have a, an inflow of 10%, you increase your position size by 10% on that day you get the inflow. Uh, I think it's the cleanest and I think it's the, 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 the most correct way of doing it because it's very simple. You want each day's PL to express the PL of your portfolio. And the only way to do that is that if you get more money, well, then you have to increase your positions and vice versa. Because otherwise, your PL will not uh, reflect the true underlying system. But there is a lot of debate about this, to my surprise, actually, uh, that not everyone uh, does that. Uh, but I, I think that's the the, uh, the best way of doing it. Um, because as you said, since we don't predict anything, we have no idea what's going to happen, why would we even try then predict when is the best time to 
put the money to work, why wouldn't we just do it so that we're always, quote-unquote, fully invested as we should be uh, with the money that we have in our strategy? Right. Now, what drives you crazy is we'll call the exceptions to the general rule. And and we'll sort of say that uh, let's assume that you're having a uh, portfolio, portfolio. It has, you know, let's just say four, 40, 50 positions. And let's say one, uh, two of those positions are you know, within a few ticks of being stopped out. So it's close to the stop level. There's always a few as they say, well, I'll put on, let's say, 38 of those 40 positions, but the two that are real close to the stop, I'll hold off because I don't want to put those on today under the assumption that maybe in a day or two, I'm going to get stopped out and I'm going to have to take those same positions I just put on and took them off. Now, I will sort of say, yes, that does happen. Yes, you will incur the transactions cost, but for every time that I've seen that you're close to a stop and you get stopped out and you incur the transactions cost, there's times where you get close to a stop and then it reverses and then continues on the trend and uh, you don't get stopped out and, and the trend continues. So because you can't make that prediction, you just have to go with whatever the positions that you say at a given point when money comes in. Absolutely. And also, by the way, another way to, to look at it is if you're close to a stop, it's a very low risk investment point anyway. So actually, it makes a lot of sense. And the whole, and we discussed this, I think, last time uh, with Rob, uh, there was a question about transaction cost in general. And, and all I will say is if you're a long term trend follower, don't worry about transaction costs. Really, it should not be part of your major concern. Just make sure you don't pay any silly prices to your broker. But it really shouldn't be a big part of your um, influence on on returns, uh, whether you pay eight dollar round turn or, or twelve dollar round turn. You know, it doesn't make a big difference. So, and, and I will sort of say, from a professional level, the cost on a round turn, if you're investing in a fund, you know, the fund manager, they're, they're extremely low. It's just yeah, that, absolutely. So, so you may be paying less than a uh, you know a dollar a side, you know, on on uh, brokerage. Well, not for the full, not for the full. No, that so, might be so, for execution or you know, or for but but for the full, you know, it's typically sort of five to ten dollar round turn all in with all the the charges and all of that. But this is also why, when 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 I hear this as an argument for choosing a, a manager because they may have developed. Uh, a better execution and they can save 30 cents, etc., uh, etc. Et I know it's a saving, right? But I don't think it should be what determines whether you think you want to invest with them or not because you can have, you know, a, a poor strategy and they can lose a lot more than, you know, 30 basis points per year relative to a sound strategy that pays a bit more in commission. So these, you know, how close you are to an exchange should not be the reason why you choose a manager, in, in the well, unless it's a high frequency manager okay maybe but but certainly not a long-term trend follower I can assure you our firm is far away from any exchange and uh, we seem to be doing okay so uh, and, all right. and you will will say that the the brokerage cost relative to the bid ask spread is extremely low so so your 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 bid ask spread if it's one tick you know it it could be three times as large as what the brokerage. And now I will sort of say this is that, you know, we talked about what is the overall cost. This is that surprisingly is that brokers aren't making a lot of money in the futures business. Actually, you, you'll find that sometimes the fees associated with the CME 
are much larger than what yeah. the fees that the actual broker gets. So the broker yeah. who's actually handling the order is making less money than the exchange who's just uh, matching the trades and providing clearinghouse services. Those aren't trivial, but at the same time, on a relative basis, the CME makes more money than sometimes the broker in a lot of transactions. Yeah, no, I agree. It's certainly been uh, been um, driven down how, how much a uh, broker can charge, certainly the larger firms. Well, I will say, though, where I do think that there is some value is to have very experienced traders on the desk who will execute these orders. I think that's actually, and and uh, I know for a fact that on our, again, on, on in our firm, um, some of my colleagues from the trading area, I mean, not only have they been with Don for more than 20 years alone, I mean, they have like 40 years worth of experience. I mean, they're super, uh, they're supermen in this uh, industry because when you deal with commodities in particular, it does make a difference whether you have experience or not, and you can't just send the order straight to to you know from computer to computer and and think you're going to get the best fill. So that's where experience comes in. I think that's more valuable than whether you pay three dollar round turn or seven dollar round turn, frankly. But anyways, let's move on because we've got a a, a good program um, to uh, to go through, and so. Last week, as I mentioned, we did a very interesting kind of review of a recent research paper by AHL. Today, we're going to move on to a research paper that came out this week um, by another great firm, Aspect uh, Capital. And they talked about uh, some of the things that uh, is going on with trend following right now. Now, it's not, don't get the impression that Mark and I spent hours going through with a tooth comb every single word that, that was written, but it's more the sort of the overall message some of the findings they have that we wanted to to touch on and um, and because what they were trying to do is that they wanted to show that portfolio stresses at the moment like we talked about earlier in terms of the markets have gone off the charts at the moment and that we are in this new economic paradigm and that they feel um, and of course we share that that trend following strategies are the best place to navigate this enduring period of heightened uncertainty. So why don't you talk a little bit about some of the things that you found uh, interesting, Mark, and maybe um, we take it a little bit further than than how they looked at, at the topics. Right. Well, well, the first overall theme that I have, and, and this is, you know, thematic from uh, for the whole period of time, is that we'll call this period the great repricing of risk crisis. So it, it seems as that we often wanted to make every crisis a great one. So we had the great financial crisis, <laughs> uh, you know, you had the uh, the Great Depression, uh, we've had the, uh, the the great stock market sell off of 80, 87. But this one's different because they say it's a big repricing of, of risk. And, and, and we'll sort of say this is a specifically for bonds and equities. So given we have higher interest rates and higher inflation, we have to reprice what is the you know, valuation of stocks in the market, and that repricing is going to go down. And similarly, if we have higher inflation and more volatility in bonds, the term premium that you receive in, in uh, bonds has to go up. And if expected inflation goes up, then it, rates have to go up. And if real rates have been negative for a very long time, they have to go up. This is a great repricing in bonds. And I think that the, the paper that we saw for Aspect sort of 
focuses in on on these uh, important aspects. One is that volatility is going up and uncertainty is going up, which is uh, which causes a repricing. Uh, we've had higher inflation. We have uh, commodity prices going up. We've had still the Fed balance sheet, you know, has, has, and the balance sheet of all central banks have increased significantly over the period. And then they tie this back to the fact that, okay, we're seeing that uh, yields are going to start to go higher, so bond prices are going to go lower. And the performance of your classic 60-40 stock portfolio uh, is not going to work. For the simple reason, if you're repricing risk for your two major asset classes, then those two asset classes are going to be correlated. And if they're correlated, then you don't get any uh, protection uh, from diversification. And so they've done a great job of laying this out. And they said, well, then they say, well, trend following is the is the solution. But I think that what they've missed is this, is that one is, is that in a repricing of risk, what you do is you need to be able to get short in a market, which is a, uh, available from trend following. But they don't really focus in on, okay, why is this repricing of risk occurring? And why is trend following able to take advantage of it? So if you reprice risk, it should, uh, and everybody knows that we're going into a stagflation environment, it should happen fairly quickly. And in reality, it hasn't. This has been a slow grind, albeit it, uh, it, it's been over a six-month period. But we think that the, this grind has is, is not been like March of 2020, where it was precipitous. It's not like the fall of 2008, where there was a, a, a great repricing of, of risk because of, of bank liquidity issues. This one has, has actually been a grind that's been taking some time. So I always go back to say, what is the reason for why you can you see trend following working? And I always use the framework of convergence and divergence. Okay, and and, and it, when when you say that the, the markets could either converge, they mean reverting. So if they get away from an equilibrium, then they move back to an equilibrium. You know, prices. Uh, but on the other hand, prices can also diverge, and a divergence occurs when there's a fundamental change in the equilibrium price that's uh, that people perceive that assets should be uh, valued at. And in that case, when you have divergence, you're going to have a large adjustment in price and trend followers are able to because they they look for trends they just look for dislocations that they're able to take advantage of these divergences better than other strategies another way to think of this is, is that you know a divergence strategy is a, uh, or a trend following strategy is a dislocation trading so uh, so trend following is based on the idea of dislocations. And so you could think of trend following as dislocation seeking as opposed to dislocation avoidance. So someone who's a convergent trader is looking for dislocation avoidance. Those that are divergent traders, like trend followers, are dislocation seeking. So in a, uh, and when you think about uh, when we've had discussions in the last couple of months with, uh, with Jerry about uh, uh, trying to look for all those tail events, looking for uh, having a big portfolio with a, a lot of uh, 
investment alternatives, uh, meaning a lot of assets, because you're looking for those uh, tail events. In some sense, he's and all trend followers are dislocation seeking. So, so now you have to sort of say, is this is it? And you look at this. What kind of dislocation seeking do we see right now? And what we're seeing is is that that it's a very macro regime dislocation. It's a macro regime divergence. And when you think about it, trend following and uh, when you make money, there could be two types of uh, of opportunities for sort of dislocation trading. One could be a sort of a macro basis. So, okay, so there's some macro event that's going on, and others could be a micro event. So a micro event could be, let's say I have uh, a, uh, you know, uh, weather shock in, in, uh, in the Midwest, and that causes the prices of corn and soybeans to increase. Uh, so that could be a, a dislocation event. It's market-specific. It could last for some period of time, but then people will try to find substitutes and, uh, and we'll say that over the next year there might be more grain or there could be more grain that's grown down in Latin America so that there's a reaction to it so that this location lasts for a while and, and, then, and then we move back into an equilibrium. Here, in what Aspect was talking about in their pa- paper, is, is the fact we are having a macro regime uh, dislocation in a macro regime uh, uh, event, and that sort of causes a common factor effect. And the common factor means is that we're getting a repricing of equities, we get a repricing of bonds, and we're getting a repricing uh, of this across the entire uh, entire globe. And this is what happens is when when you actually have a sort of a stagflation change. So now the question comes in is this is that okay if this is obvious well why doesn't why wasn't the reaction swifter and and we'll sort of say that uh, this is uh, this is one of the issues uh, that trend following takes advantage of because people often don't see these uh, events or these regime regime change immediately it may take some time to be revealed and so if we go back into uh, the end of uh, last year, is that most you know professional economists were arguing that this was going to be a transitory inflation that you know, we had a pop caused because there was uh, excesses from the pandemic that were built up as those uh, logistical issues are solved after the excesses of demand are, are eliminated, then this transitory inflation w- will will pass and we'll be back to normal, okay? So given the uncertainty about transitory versus permanent, this is that it took, it's taken, uh, and it's still in the process of occurring, it takes a while for people to adjust to this phenomena. And so consequently, is is that you could have longer term trends as as people sort of as the uncertainty is revealed or uh, and we find out that the reality is different than what we thought, say, six months ago. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's um, quite a lot going on um, for sure. And now you talked also about uh, one of the things you made in terms of a note um, that you shared with me was also in terms of, and I think we've talked about this before, 
which is uh, that you have certain large, what should I call it, um, large events that has an impact on markets. And then you have, um, and, and those we might think are something that drives performance to a large extent. But I think the uh, paper from CFM and, and the conversation that we had on the volatility series, um, you know, with the chairman of CFM, he found that these big news events are actually not really what drives performance in our industry. It's probably more driven by how market participants are positioned. And so, so, but you wrote to me something about sort of the the large shocks and then many mini shocks, and I'm not sure entirely where you wanted to go with that, but yeah. I did want to no, remind you about what, it. What uh, and we've seen research, especially in the behavioral finance areas, is is that that we can have very large shocks, and and I'm talking about large macro shocks. So it's like right. the pandemic of March 2020. This is, is it. Sure. What you what you find out is is that you can have these massive large shocks, okay, and there's going to be a market overreaction. To these large shocks, markets will move, right. markets diverge, but oftentimes that there's going to be an overreaction. And so, when you look at a lot of trend followers in the March of 2020 period, you know some made some some good money. Other people right. lost them a lot of money because what you saw is, is and there are a number of other events going on. But you had the large pandemic shock, and the Fed came in to sort of dissipate it. So so you actually had a quick reversal. So you can have a large shock, and what behavioral finance people find is, is that sometimes you get an overreaction to large shocks, and even on a on a stock basis, this is that you get a big earnings announcement, and if it's bad news, you're usually going to get an overreaction. And we'll, we'll sort of say that that when you have a large uh, shock, is that that may not be as good an environment for trend followers as if if you have a lot of mini shocks or, right, a, sure. or a sequence of shocks that are all in the same direction, but no single one is enough to immediately change your behavior. So, so for example, is, is that when you look at inflation, is that we were getting signs last year that inflation was going higher. Okay. But, you know, let's just say like, okay, we went from Inside two percent inflation went a little bit above two, then it got higher. People explained this away because it was sort of these mini shocks. But then we started getting a sequence of another one and another one and another one. And all of a sudden, because there's a sequence or trend of mini shocks that people weren't expecting. So they're all coming in the same direction. But we're probably sort of saying, like, I don't really believe the first two then you start to see a trend in the macro behavior. And that trend of macro behavior then translates into price activity. So uh, so I think that what makes this different than, let's say, March of 2020, or even the great financial crisis, is, is that we're constantly getting a sequence of small shocks that are telling us signals that inflation is going higher or that we're having stagflation or that the economy is slowing. There's no one single event that you can point to, but because of the sequence of these continual shocks, that's leading to trends that are lasting a fairly long time. And that's exactly what we're sort of exploiting because the trend follower is not saying, 
I'm going to try to forecast what the next shock will do. I'm not going to try to trade against the shock. I'm just looking at the price activity in response to this sequence of shocks. And even if you look at central bank behavior, uh, you could sort of say, well, well, first it was going to be, well, we're going to have to start raising rates. Then it was going to be, we're going to be doing a sequence of 25 basis points. Then it became, well, we're going to have to do 250 basis point changes. And then we're going to go back, probably back down in the fall to 25. Now we're up to 75. So you can sort of see that there's a sequence of shocks of changing behavior by the Fed, which causes prices to, uh, and the repricing of fixed income and equity to take longer because it takes a while for us to reveal what's actually uh, going on. And so when you think about macro trends, there is a number of effects that are going on. So one is I call the uncertainty effect, which we're seeing, seeing now in the uncertainty of what you know, you get retail sales. Retail sales was positive this month. It's sort of like, eh. but on a real basis, it was fairly negative. Okay, uh, you have housing uh, starts and housing information. Well, we had an overheated housing market, so you say like, now it's it's sort of uh, we're getting a slowdown. Mortgages are more expensive, so that might cool off what seemed to be a bubble. Okay, is it, should I be worried about that yet? Well, if you look at home builders, they're down like forty percent, you know, as a, as a sector c- uh, category. So, so there's some uncertainty, and we sort of try to explain away why we're not in a new equilibrium. We sort of say let's let's rationalize well why the data that we're seeing is probably going to revert or converge back to old uh, the old economy or old behavior. Then what you have is, uh, is, we'll call it the policy adjustment effect for macro, is, is that generally policymakers are always going to be behind the curve. So I don't think that I can think of any time over the last 40 years of the career I have, except for, you know, say the Volcker era in 1980, where uh, the Fed said, I'm going to get ahead of this. I see inflation uh, occurring to be uh, occurring, and I th- think it's going to be higher. So I'm going to sort of, you know, preemptively start to increase rates to sort of s- stop this before it really occurs. So they're always going to be sort of a, a lagging effect. Sometimes I don't, th- and and they sort of say, well. I'm going to err on the side of caution because I don't want to sort of disrupt the economy. And that and that's fine, but that's going to then cause some more trend-following behavior. Then what you're going to also going to get what, what we'll call this is, is that uh, you're, you're going to have further dislocations, especially with inflation, because we get higher inflation. So you have to ask yourself, okay, is that something that's permanent or is it transitory? Then I have to ask the question is, is that, well, I see, let's say, corn prices going up. Is that an inflation effect? Is it a weather effect? Is it a market-specific effect? And because with inflation, which is a recurring theme that we've talked about before, is this that you have more uncertainty about what prices are telling you. So that means that you're going to have uh, uh, more uncertainty about how you should price your goods and what actions you should take. And, and then I think finally what you fi- have with a macro is, is you have the evaluation effect. And so when you have higher interest rates and you have 
higher, um, you know, sort of uh, inflation, you'd say, well, what is the true valuation of stocks? Is that usually you find you have a nonlinear relationship as inflation goes up, you know, cap rates from Schiller's is that we should go down. And so, so we're going to have to reprice a lot of equities to sort of get back to what the historic norm between cap rates and, and inflation. And bonds, this is that if you sort of say like, well, what is the true price of bonds? Well, we don't really know because we got to then sort of figure out what is the expected inflation, not over the next year, but over the next uh, five years or 10 years. And that number could be much higher or it could be, it could be lower. So we're seeing some expected inflation numbers coming down over the 10-year period, which sort of uh, suggests that maybe we've peaked out on the inflation expectation effect. So a couple of things I think it opens up when I hear you talk. Um, the first thing that springs to mind um, is, well, let me just pick up on what you just talked about, uh, inflation here. Um, and uh, one thing that I want to, at least in my own mind, uh, explore a little bit more, because I, I hear the word inflation as, okay, it's like one thing, it's inflation. But... I've also come across people who talk about inflation in a much more nuanced way, name, namely a predictable inflation and unpredictable inflation. And from my understanding, um, you know, the 40s were more predictable inflation and the 70s were much more unpredictable inflation. And so I think actually, in addition to all of these arguments about, well, we're going to have higher inflation, higher interest rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, this is going to lead to more uncertainty. I worry personally that we can end up with a period of, of high and unpredictable inflation. I don't think that's going to be a bad thing for trend following, frankly, but I think it's generally not a great thing for pretty much anything else um, because you can't plan. So companies won't make big commitments in terms of CapEx, et cetera, et cetera, because they have no idea how to look 10 years forward or 20 years forward if inflation changes uh, every month uh, significantly and, and so on and so forth. So I think that's something that we probably will talk about more as we get into this new regime, et cetera, et cetera. But the other thing I wanted to pick up on is just because it relates so beautiful to the uh, episode we launched or we published on, on uh, Wednesday with Peter Atwater, because Peter is He's just an expert and a wonderful thinker who is who thinks outside the box. And actually, the way I came across him, it's actually a few years ago, um, and I was so excited that we could get him on the podcast because he, many years ago, talked about confidence and how confidence is easy to uh, proxy when you just look at the level of interest rates, meaning when interest rates are low, the confidence in central banks are at the highest and vice versa, when interest rates are sky high, then the confidence in the central bank's ability to do anything sensible is, is at its low. So, so we've come out of this 20-year period, more or less, but certainly we've come out of a period where confidence in these institutions, including central banks, were very high. Reflect and this was reflected by extremely low interest rates. In fact, negative interest rates in Europe. Um, and so, if this is changing, and if 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 Peter's uh, way of looking at it, which I have no uh, I have no uh, issues with at all, then we are moving not only into a world of high in interest rates, higher inflation. We're also moving into a world where there is less confidence 
in the people who are uh, employed to navigate us through this uncertain uh, environment. So this is also why I've mentioned before that my conviction in trend following and the fact that it has to be, if it isn't already, it has to be part of any portfolio out there because it will be truly one of few uncorrelated return streams. It's already proven that for decades, but it's going to continue to prove that unlike what we're now seeing in equity and bonds. And I've heard people um, talk about how uh, the positive correlation between stocks and bonds is not meant to happen. And I'm just thinking, have they not studied history? Because actually, most of the time, correlation between equities and bonds are positively correlated. It's just the fact we haven't seen much of it in the last 20 years. So people automatically think, oh, that's the norm, negative correlation between stocks and bonds, that's the norm. No, no, that it's not the norm. The norm is that they are positively correlated. And so if you start thinking about that and you think about how most uh, institutional investors are invested today in a quasi 60-40 type portfolio, it leads to massive question marks as to how, uh, pardon my French, but I was just about to say something I would regret <laughs> later. Watch but yourself. How Watch on yourself. earth? How on earth? That's what I meant. <laughs> how on earth are they going to uh, to get out of this without losing their t-shirt? So I, I just think there's so many facets to to what's going on, and um, I think we're just scratching the surface. Really, even though, frankly, I could easily see we get a bounce now in 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 bond prices. I mean, they've been sold off dramatically. Thirty-year bonds in many countries are down by thirty-five big figures uh, from their high. I mean, massive uh, sell-off. And of course, at some point, we're going to take a break. We're going to have a big reversal. And and what I worry about a little bit, if I kind of take my trend-following head off and just look at the price charts. If we if we are going to get a, a bond price uh, rally from here for a few months, it could be because equities are getting absolutely slaughtered uh, at the same time. And I think there are some signs that we are breaking down through some levels where it could get really ugly. I mean, if it isn't ugly already, it really could be. But that's obviously not being a trend follower when I look at that. It's just trying to put things into perspective that people might think it's too late to start protecting their portfolios by allocating some money to trend following. And I'm not necessarily saying that timing is great compared to six months ago. That would have been better without a doubt. But I just don't think it's too late um, because I don't think this is a short-term thing. This will perhaps be with us for years, maybe a decade, um, because there's so many things that are fundamentally changing in the world around us whether it's from energy security, which obviously we don't have time to go into today, but I just think that there are a lot of things happening right now with OPEC that people are not aware of and the fact that we're getting close to capacity and they can't necessarily produce more even if we need to and all of those things. So, And the fact that we have never been lower in terms of our uh, strategic, um, not strategic reserves, that's low as well, but but actually the, the inventories are the lowest they've ever been at this time of year. So we haven't, we haven't built anything uh, as we normally do because we're so busy trying to keep prices down uh, and just getting the stuff uh, that we need. So there's just so many things um, that I think could go, well, I wouldn't say go wrong, but there are many things that are impacting markets and economies at the moment. And um, and it's 
it's going to lead to more volatility and more uncertainty. Well, this, there are a couple of. Uh, I'll first take the macro and the micro uh, response, response to some of the things that you said. So, from a mm-hmm. macro perspective, I don't know if if low interest rates are a confidence issue, albeit you know uh, as much as a manipulation issue. So, those low rates were caused because you know governments and central central banks in particular manipulated interest rates so that wasn't representative sure but the market allowed them to do that's i think that's what peter means i mean the market had a lot of confidence in these institutions or in in general in in the economy i mean people you know a year ago didn't talk about uh, all this uh, that's going on right now right everything was honky dory um, and it was reflected in 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 crazy valuations and 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 crazy interest rates for that matter um well the, but i agree the interest rates were manipulated i'm not saying they weren't for what, sure what what i think where there's a loss of confidence is when you look at uh what we're seeing in reality in the numbers versus what maybe some government officials may be telling us. So 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 I look for example at the the Fed. The Fed says is that we're going to raise rates, we're going to get well above 3%, yet we're going to see next year that the unemployment rate is going to tick up by about a tenth of a percent and 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 their uh SEP forecast. We're going to sort of see the so we're going to see inflation go down by ha- uh, half from their current forecast, which is w- way under predicting actual inflation. So they expect that we're going to see inflation next year at like two point six, two point seven. We'll have unemployment at three point seven, and at the same time, we're going to have growth that is going to be coming in below trend at below two percent. So so now, uh, so this is almost like a Goldilocks economy that you could sort of say, we're going to kill inflation, everybody's going to be at work, and we're going to have slower growth. So, and nothing, nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. That is, is that a confidence builder or is it a confidence destroyer? No, but this is the point. This is the point. I think people are losing confidence in these institutions. I think that's what he's telling us, that that's exactly what his, his view is. And I... And I hold, I share that. I think, and the, I think this is just the beginning. Um, you know, interest rates are still fairly low uh, in Europe. They haven't moved yet, right? You think that's, I mean, that's completely crazy, right? With inflation where it is, and the interest rates haven't even moved yet. So, I think people can lose confidence in the ECB much quicker than they can in the Fed. Right. And well, then you have Japan, right, doing something that is just extraordinary, um, where they pretty much are on their way to own all. All ten-year JDBs will be owned by the central bank in, in in a very short period of time. In that sense, is that an emergency meeting by the ECB to talk about fragmentation is uh, is not a confidence builder. But but that being said, from a from a trend following perspective, so so sort of say this is the reason why you want to look at prices because I don't know if I have confidence in what you know central banks are telling me. I don't have confidence in their forecasts. I uh, I see the numbers that are coming from the government, and I believe that they're collecting them in the right way. But how to inter- interpret that? I don't have confidence that the people who are, you know, chief e- economists are doing a good job of interpreting that data. So so I will leave it to prices to uh, to tell me how to interpret this information. So. 
prices are interpreting this as negative information. Now, now the important on a micro perspective is I'd sort of say, I think that there's a big difference between behavior and longer term trends versus shorter term trends. So, and I think we talked about this at the beginning of the, of the podcast here, is that some of the long-term trends have been in place for you know a very long time. Shorter-term trend following is because volatility is really high. I'm sort of seeing this as that if you're looking for something that's uh, you know two weeks or under or even one month and under, you're seeing that, that you're seeing uh, in some markets more in and out trading. You're seeing more reversals that are occurring in the short term where the long term is still holding uh, holding tight with your long term trades. So uh, I think it's really important to have both short term and long term trend, uh, trend following in your portfolio because you're seeing this is that long term trends, we're not getting a lot of switches Short terms, we're getting a lot more switches. There's a lot more behavioral changes, and you're more more adjustments. So, so you can think of you want to have diversification both in terms of time frame, as well as uh, uh, you know uh, style within uh, or uh, or time frame as a style within your por- portfolio. Now, finally, on a macro perspective, I say like I think that this is uh, the big thing. I think that. Credit drives all markets. And in reality, even a trend follower is a credit trader. So hear me out. This is, is that you look at energy. The reason why we're having big trends in energy is because there's uh, the energy sector is being starved for credit. Okay, uh, There's not enough that's being invested. Now, there's policy issues too, but the policy issues are say that we're not going to allow enough credit to go into uh, into the energy sector. We'll sort of say, say that uh, we obviously have the credit effect, you know, because of ex- higher expected inflation, but then the credit effect also translates into, you know, global stock indices and why that there's trends there. In some sense, we've had a lot of companies that were making in a, in a zero interest rate environment, you were making on your uh return on capital of you know maybe three percent well <laughs> this is it how long should a company exist or how are they going to get financing to go forward if they're not uh, if they're making such low returns on their capital no one's going to give them any money in a, in the current environment where you think interest rates are going to go higher so uh, you look at all of the uh, commodity sectors that have really moved is in some sense, this is that they probably, and when people talk about a super cycle, it's because there's been an underinvestment because there's been starved for credit to make investment in, in infrastructure and logistics. And then even when you think about the logistic problem, so I've always said that commodities is about logistics, especially in the front end. Okay. Well, we need a massive in, increase in investments in commodities to adjust to a new globalized world where the logistics are going to be different than what they were in the past. Okay, Whether it means it needing more grain elevators, whether you need more tankers because money uh, oil is going to be flowing to different locations. 
if you have to hold more inventory because uh, you know you you want to sort of protect yourself because uh, there m- might be a war that's uh, that doesn't allow grain to move. This is that all of these lead to uh, infrastructure costs that are going to have to be capitalized, and you're going to need credit for. And and when you think about it, even from a, a you know short term natural gas, it's it's a little f- a field. So there was a fire in in uh, Freeport, Texas, which stopped one of the LNG facilities from loading up LNG to go to Europe. It's like all of a sudden this is that Henry Hub natural gas fell out of bed because I say like, oh, that that natural gas is going to stay in the United States and not move across borders. So they said it might not and then they say that may not be solved until the end of the year because of this fire. So again, you're going to need more credit. You're going to need capital. So so as credit markets get repriced that's going to affect the infrastructure for all the markets that we trade as trend followers. So the trends will will last because the infrastructure costs are not going to be solved overnight. So that means that the uh, the shocks that we're seeing are going to last longer than expected. Yeah, I cl- I agree with that final part. Uh, there are a couple of things during your uh, your 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 um, talk points there that I wasn't necessarily fully agreeing with, but but I agree with the last point, that there is a better chance, let's put it that way, that some of these issues that are causing uh, these trends won't be solved in the short term. I completely agree yep. with that. Uh, and I, of course, I also, to a large uh, extent, agree with the fact that when you say that that a lot of the trends we trade are to somewhat extent uh, relating back to, to credit. But I will also say um, certainly when you just talk about energy, but I think this can be applied to other things that it also depends on uh, stupid polit- political decisions being made, uh, certainly in Europe, where we've kind of put all our energy reliance uh, into the hands of, of Russia, um, certainly if you're uh, sitting in Germany. That's just crazy politics, right? It's, it's just it's nothing to do with credit, It's as, as far as I can tell. Um, it has to do with, oh, let's just, uh, we can separate politics from trade and let's just trade f- as friends and forget about the politics. But, I mean, huge mistake, let's put it that way. Well, it, it was a, uh, so policy is often, you know, sort of uh, for appearances or it it's short-sighted in the sense is, is that uh, getting uh, Russian natural gas and, and oil was was cheap. This is the quickest way to get uh, sure. get get it there. So, so the cost of building more LNG facilities to get it from other places, so whether it be Africa or the Middle East, was going to be more expensive. That took that'll uh, take infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, but they could have kept nuclear, for example, instead of closing. Yeah, well, the plant. <laughs> all that. I mean, you know, and and that which also re- which is another thing that actually I th- another theme that will drive, I think, a lot of these trends, generally speaking, it's the whole impact of ESG and how that's handled. I don't think anybody, uh, you know, is in a disagreement with, uh, you know, the goal of having a, 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 a good planet that we can live uh, on. It's probably more the way it's being handled um, and, 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 and not thinking through the issues of closing down certain energy sources before you're ready with new energy sources. So that's another thing. And the final point I wanted to maybe take a little bit of exception with, and of course this is because I'm somewhat biased, (laughs) but 
I'm not so sure if we're going to have a major crisis and we're in the middle of one. And I do, again, I don't really need the, the, the word crisis, but it's just a big regime change. I'm not so sure that short-term strategies are the place to be, frankly. I, I think most evidence points towards the longer-term trend-following strategies doing coming out better, not necessarily month by month or quarter by quarter, but in the long run, at least when I go back and I look at different difficult periods in time, um, by far the better strategies have been the longer-term trend-following. Now, that's not to say that you can't find one or two, and I've often mentioned that there are a couple of short-term managers that actually I do think will probably do well and have done well. But for the most part, I think all the evidence, at least what what we find on our side, um, because frankly, we don't have a bias towards being long-term trend followers uh, at Dunn. We we let the data decide. So we actually don't care what time frame we trade. If it's the most robust and profitable time frame, we'll trade it. But it just so happens that the data never suggests like a 20-day breakout system. It's always, you know, 150 days or 250 days. It's not 20 days. So so again, it's not really a biased observation. It's just use, using historical data. I think that short-term is not going to do as well as longer term if this crisis continues. I mean, already now, you can see the the, the short-term traders index versus the trend-following index um, from Sokjian. I mean, that's just no comparison and hasn't been for years, really. Right. Um, but in short periods of time, okay, maybe March 2020, it did better. Maybe in February of 2018, it did better. Sure, but long-term, I don't think there's a, uh, a comparison. So now um, I, w- I will sort of say, this always, uh, and when we have these discussions, I guess I, I have to be precise in, and you sort of define my terms. So, uh, because we, we get into these long battles because, uh, you know, someone <laughs> will make a judgment, but then they don't define their terms. And then we spend the next month sort of, sort of say like, well, this is what I really meant. So short term from my perspective might be, you know, around 20 days. Plus, which for some people would sort of say yeah, is still is is not really short term. This is and long term would be you know sort of multi month you know trends. So so and I think the key is is that we're sort of saying we're seeing more reversals in short term trends. Meaning, and I'm sort of saying twenty day plus as opposed to eighty day plus. Uh, what we found is is from very short term trend following, but that's not new, right, Mark? Yeah, no, that's, that's not new. That's you not, would always see you would always see that. that. That's not new. So so even though we're having a trend following envir- uh, environment, what we're saying is is that the very long term trends are holding their same positions that have been either mm-hmm. short or long for a very long period of time. We're seeing more recently. So for example, in commodities, especially. For shorter term, let's say around twenty day, they're getting more reversals. They're 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 flipping back and forth more. But your core positions are still very much you know uh, long com- uh, commodities. So what you do find is 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 that uh, that you can have in a higher volatility environment, you actually have volatility by its nature is going to be more mean. You're going to have dislocations and then mean reversion. So. If you're a trend follower, you could actually be a situation because you're a liquidity taker and you have these mean reversions in high volatility periods, you could actually be actually whipsawed fairly often if you're trading in, in, in very short time horizons. That's what you're seeing. Uh, so when you have higher volatility, it's 
better to trade longer-term trends because a trend follower is a liquidity taker. You don't want to try to be taking liquidity in a high-volatility environment because it, it could be very costly for you. So, uh, and I, I would just sort of say right now, especially longer-term trend followers have done very well because they've just stuck with their same positions for months. <laughs> yeah, I actually think that um, if I was going to look at that topic about, you know, definitely there are some, there has been some uh, more um, volatility and, 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 and reversals maybe than in the beginning of the year, and that which is completely normal, of course, these things don't go in a straight line. I think it probably um, will ask just more questions about how you manage risk uh, and how you construct your portfolio and all of that. Um, so that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. Now, there is a, uh, so my old adage has always been is, is, is that the trend follower is always long, long volatility and short, short volatility. In a sense, this is that your long, long volatility, this is that you like to have a lot of dispersion in prices. You you want you want to have prices diverge. So so a longer volatility allows that, you know, let's say one standard deviation as you move multiply that times the square root of time, you know, the, the range that prices could be is going to get much larger. So so you love that. On the other hand, is is that short volatility, if you have a spike in short volatility, well, then what happens is that you're more likely to get stopped out of your positions, depending on where your stops are. So, so in some sense, the combination of a stop with your trend following, which you're creating as a sort of what I call, you're creating a knockout option. Okay, and a knockout in this sense is that I'm holding a position. It's like a call option. It's my stop is 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 the difference between the price and and where my stop is the is is the premium that I'm actually paying to to take that trade. If I get stopped out, I lose that option position. So, uh, so or that position, and so in some senses, I'm getting stopped out and I lose the position. Now I got to sort of reverse it or wait till the position to come back on. So so you're always Long, long volatility, short, short volatility, and you're correct in saying this is that then it's a matter as is if I have spikes in volatility, what happens to my stops? How did I manage my risk? You know, when do, or do I adjust my stops given a change in volatility? And and this, these are important issues. And, and I think the yeah the real issue is is that on, on the sh- short term is is, is that. Uh, is that when you have that high volatility, you do get more mean reversion. And and that's what you want to try to avoid if you're the trend follower, because because that'll get you stopped out. And then you're going to find out you might have to put the same position back on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you do trend following using stops, which not all managers do, of course. All right. I think, I mean, we got through quite a lot of the uh, points you had uh, raised in your note to me yesterday. Anything that we missed that you think we have to uh, before we start to wrap up? No, or? no. I think that uh, the the key or the uh, the the core that we're trying to get across, and I think that this is what I didn't see, but I think what aspect is trying to see is that we're in a regime change, and you know there's a lot of uncertainty in this regime change, but because there's there's trends that are in place, and we're going through this new environment, this is that following prices and using prices as your signal 
maybe more important than following the, the announcements of government officials, central banks, or behavior that it may be behind the curve. So follow the prices, follow the trends, and if you have, wh where should you put your confidence? Put your confidence in prices and, and, and not in the, uh, uh, not in policy or in prescriptions that are given from uh, policymakers. And certainly not in narrative from quote-unquote experts on CNBC and Bloomberg, but there we are. <laughs> um, okay, good place to actually wrap up, I would say, and uh, maybe to uh, underscore what we've discussed, uh, a quick look at performance as of Thursday night, um, just to see where we are. And the uh, BTOP 50 index is up 4% for the month of June, up 19.75 for the year. Sockgen CT index up 4.64% for the month and up 24.77 now for the year. The trend index, Sockgen trend, up 6.59% so far this month <laughs> and up 34.02% for the year. Absolutely amazing. And uh, the Sockgen short-term trainers index up 22 25% and up 12% for the year. Um, as I mentioned, Trend Barometers uh, finished at 57 as a Friday night, uh, so it's strong. Uh, MSE World Index down 10.94 for the month of June, down 23.08 for the year. World Government Bond Index down 2.65% already in uh, June, down 10.65 for the year. And the S&P 500 total return index down 11.07% so far this month, down 22.9% so far this year. We're going to wrap up this uh, conversation. Um, if you enjoy these conversations, by the way, um, why don't you send an email to three of your friends or colleagues or people you just care about and who are interested in investing? And if you share the link, toptradersonplot.com forward slash share, then actually that is the best way for them to uh, pick up uh, and uh, follow the podcast. Next week, I'm joined by Jerry. So we're definitely going to tackle some hardcore trend-following topics. Uh, so make sure you send all of your questions through to us in advance. Uh, the earlier, the better, for sure. And you can email them as usual to info at toptradersonplot.com and we do our best to answer all of your questions. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, and also, by the way, the monthly report, trend-following report, performance report, is probably going to come out in the next week or so. Um, so Rich and I are working on that. Um, so follow that on the blog. I think that just leaves me to say from Mark and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.